this citation this morning and I got called on it and I, I did and I doubled down I thought I was right so when Patty Starmer came up to me and said I think I got you um, she did even though at the time I assured her no no I do you don't Gordon Lightfoot is indeed a singer The commentator that I was referencing is J.B. Lightfoot. I think I got Gordon Fee and Lightfoot. So let's begin by just recognizing I was wrong. And not only was I wrong, when I was corrected, I was wrong again. The wronging just keeps going on. Um, So, oh, you got got a blank or an... Oh, good grief. It breeds... Chaucer. Chaucer. Okay. 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 All right. Any other complaints? Anyone else care to grumble? Okay. Um, let, me, let me see what blanks, if any, we missed here. Okay. Any, any uh, blanks, Lee? Two A two, they think they can understand without God's grace. They think they can understand without God's grace. Okay. Oh, Renee, what do we got? I want to confirm two C three. Is it mediate? Mediate. And teaching. Teaching mediates the Father's teaching. Mediates the Father's teaching. And the other person who corrected me was Natalie Conradi. And again, Natalie, you're quite right. Um, okay. So questions on this morning? If not, I got a couple of rabbit trails we can go down, but Chris is going to kick this off. So. so it's possible you made this connection and I missed it anyway, but if not... It's also possible I was wrong, <laughs> as, we, no. as we've learned. So. No, this, I don't think there's a chance of that in this case, but... Uh, okay. But when you were talking about them dying in the wilderness, um, something very interesting happens in chapter 14 of Numbers. Early on, as they're grumbling, they say, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. And God has a poetic way that we need to be aware of, of answering us according to our idols. Every so often what we wish for, you see later in that chapter, verse 29, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. Mm -hmm. And it's such a specific one-to-one, they even mention their fear of of their kids, and he says, no, they'll be okay. The 20s and unders will make it. I did not make that connection. I do agree with you. And no, and further to the point, God's justice is, is always poetic fitting in the book of revelation at one point the when they turn the waters into blood there's an angel who cries out this is good and righteous for they shed the blood of man so that the punishment fitting the crime the punishment being seen to fit the crime is is appropriate i mean it's also ironic what is what is uh is it rachel give me children or give me death or else else i die and god's like yes i'll give you both she she dies in childbirth god gives her two children and she dies bearing the second one. There's some kind of poetry there. I mean, you read that, you can't miss it. She's like, give me children or I die. And it's like, yes. Um, yeah, be careful, what you ask. be careful what you ask for. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. No, excellent point, Chris. I did not make that. Um, other thoughts or questions? Someone's going to pick up on the predestinarian theme. I, I just know it, and if you don't, we'll just go there anyway. So, um, let's go for it. So when I see stuff like this, and I think about, you know, I think it was Paul saying, like, you know, talking about finishing the good race, like finish, being able to finish the race and finish it well indicates that there are people that are on the race, which I would say is Christians, that yeah. don't finish it well and aren't. And I imagine that, like, you could use that as a way to argue that this isn't really just taught, like, and, and also pick up the grammar that you pointed out, that it's not necessarily the case. It could just be the way they phrased it. Like, so it's, a lot of people make the argument that it seems pretty uh, forcing. I might even equate it to, like, sexual assault. Like, no, you, I picked you. This is it. You're coming. Sure. Like, where's man's agency in that sure. when you have these other allegories that you can also draw from sure. from the New Testament? So, yeah, I was trying to make the point that even though the word drawing can be used as something very, very strong, like a net drawing in fish, and it's used, that verb is used exactly that way in, in John 21. Jesus' next statement, how does the Father draw? He does by teaching. He does by helping people to understand, opening their minds to understand things. Um, he does so by revealing truth, which is not coercive. In doing so, I mean, it, it sort of makes sense. You're in a dark room. And someone opens the blind to crack, and all of a sudden you see you're surrounded by threats and danger, and you're filthy, and like you quite naturally respond as you with full agency, and you begin to abhor yourself. And then as the as the blind opens further, you you see Christ. This is the this is the way the uh, the New Testament. Go to Second Corinthians four, one of my favorite passages. This is the way God draws, not like you said, as a rapist. Not as someone who enslaves and captures and gathers people up in a net. No, 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 fair, no, no, fair. I've heard people, other people wrestling with the doctrine of election and sovereignty have said worse. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, you're not claiming, I think that's what it is. You're saying, lest someone think that, how do you, how do you, I, you haven't said that, I'm, you're fine. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought the concept up, but I'm not crediting you with arguing that. Yeah. No, but I, okay. People recently argued that to me, and I'm like, sure. well, fair enough. Let me let me let me throw it in there. Oh yeah, no no sure, sure. Um, what passage did I say? I I cannot believe I forgot Passover this morning. In case you saw that, there was um, yeah. So I misquote Lightfoot, and where did I say to turn to Matthew? Oh, Second Corinthians. There we go. Second Corinthians four. Exactly. You can pray for my combobulation this morning. I appreciate it. Um, okay. So why do people perish? And you can speak of this in different ways. There's different metaphors. This is one of the reasons why, as we've studied through John, I've tried to develop and argue that John is trying to put some flesh on what it means to believe. If you want to say we're saved by faith, amen. There are a number of biblical metaphors. Um, There are a number of different biblical ways of speaking about it. So Jesus is just as comfortable saying we're saved by coming to him, right? We're saved by eating the living bread that he is. Well, in Second Corinthians 4, we're saved by seeing glory, and we perish because we don't see glory. That's another way of speaking about it. We're not saying something different. We're adding nuance and detail to what faith is. Um, so in chapter 4, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So to use the darkened room analogy, I've got the world's most beautiful 
painting, sculpture, whatever in this room, and you're blind, you can't see it. And so you preach Christ who is behold, who possesses all glories and all excellencies. And someone's bored and like, yeah, whatever. Um, and they perish because they don't see glory. Um, then verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Then how does that get remedied? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What is he comparing this to? When did God say, let light shine out of darkness, Matthew? It's low-hanging fruit, dude. Easy. One, right? It's right, right there at the beginning. Right, right. And does God speak light in the darkness as a reaction to someone saying, hey, it'd be a really good idea? This is a sovereign act of God, right? He just let there be light. God, so he's equating what he's about to say with that. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I like the analogy of a window opening or a, cur- a curtain or a blind being lifted because it's not that Jesus wasn't glorious and now he is. We don't see his glory, and then we do. Now that is not coercive. That is not, um, that is not taking someone by force. That is opening blind eyes. And this, this is the predominant biblical metaphor is spiritual sensory deprivation, taking eyes that don't see. Blessed are you because you have ears that hear and eyes that see. But these people, they, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, or the heart is stone and hard and unfeeling. The whole notion is spiritually the organs of sensitivity aren't functioning, and all God does is cause them to function. So when you see and when you hear and when you feel, you respond freely. I mean, I'll, I'll take this even further. Um, Edwards' definition, and I, I just say Edwards because um, if you want to read more on it, you can look it up, and because I, I don't want to take credit for coming up with this concept myself. But Edwards, it's, it's ironic. So pause with Edwards. The, the Protestant reformers and Reformation theology tends to be, um, more than tends to be, is very heavily um, emphasizing the sovereignty of God, such that John Calvin, because of how he argued it in his institutes, even got the name given Calvinism. Um, it's not for nothing that the reformers emphasized this. They saw the sovereignty of God and grace going hand in hand. They, they, they uh, wanted to take from man the credit for faith. They didn't want man to be able to say, well, I, I chose and you didn't. And so they, they emphasized this. Um, and so, hold on. So when we consider these things, um, the, the sovereignty of God is, is what we're trying to reconcile with man's volitional will. So Luther writes a book against Erasmus of Rad- Rotterdam titled The Bondage of the Will. And Jonathan Edwards writes a book, you know, like 100 years or so later, and it's called The Freedom of the Will. And ironically, Luther and, Cal- and, Luther and Edwards are basically arguing the same thing. So from one perspective, I would absolutely insist you're free to do whatever you want. You've got free will. If what you mean by free will is voluntarism, you can do whatever you want, Matthew. There's nothing to stop you other than reality from doing what you want. You can choose whatever you want to choose. Your will is free to set it, place itself on whatever it desires, right? No, nothing's twisting your arm. Nothing is forcing you. You will never do a single thing against your will, ever. Even if someone robs you, your choice will be to fight them or give them your money. You'll, you'll choose, and you'll choose whatever pleases you most. Um, Edward's emphasis, though, is because of that notion, in fact, you must do what you want to do. 
And, and, and what Edwards would say is this. If you're at a restaurant and you, you're looking at the menu and you choose the salad, and I said, well, why did you choose the salad? It has to boil down to because you wanted to. Even if the reality is, I really wanted the cheeseburger, but I also know I got to be healthy. So at the end of the day, your desire to be healthy was greater than your desire for the cheeseburger. You chose the salad because you wanted to. Or you might say, well, I didn't have enough money for the $16 burger, so I simply got the fries. Okay, well, that pleased you, right? So at the end of the day, your will selected and chose what you most wanted. It couldn't be other. In other words, if you said, I didn't want to choose it, well, why did you choose it? I don't know. I didn't want to you're really actually removing any moral culpability. So we we connect moral responsibility and agency with with the will choosing, right? Okay, so you have to choose what you want to choose. And Edward's point is this, your will isn't for everything. Your will has a bent. Your will has certain tastes and desires and inclinations. And according to John 3, whoever does wicked things hates the light. And doesn't come to the light. According to God's judgment, both before and after the flood, every thought and inclination of the heart was only evil continually. So if that's the case, I said this in the sermon, and, and I'm, I doubt it made a ton of sense then. Maybe it'll make a bit more sense now. If you grant, if you grant, get back to the menu option. If you grant, there is no scenario possible where you would ever want to eat the tenderloin. Is it possible for you to order it? Well, in one sense, sure it is, but in another sense, no, it's not. If once we grant, there is no scenario where you would ever want it, I can speak about your inability to order it. You can't order the tenderloin unless your appetite and your affections change. That, John 3 has given us, is the basis for the inability. It's not some glass wall stopping people. It's precisely because you get to do what you want that no one's ever going to come. Does that, does that make sense? It's, it's, it's almost like the notion of nature. Like when you turn on the light and the, the cockroaches scatter, right? They're not going to stay put. They're going to scatter because they're free to do what they want. And what they want to do is get away from the light. Same, same thing here. So man's inability is internally imposed by man's will, not externally imposed like some things stopping them. And then the way God fixes the problem is by altering the will being born again and then the language is much more of a birthing or of blindness being taken away or blinders or a veil being removed that's that's the language of second corinthians 4 so force isn't being done to the the person rather they're seeing and then they see they freely choose what they want to choose and they do what they want to do but of course they're going to do nothing else because they see the danger there and they see the reality of what's going on and they they act freely. So at every point, man's volition and agency is established. There's no point where it's not. At every point, I would say. I mean, what further questions does your friends have? Or I don't know if I've left. I mean, like, one of the things that they mentioned, too, a lot. Mic- microphone? This this same, well, hold on. Same line. Is they pointed out the parable of the sower yeah. in the tares, I think is what it's yeah. called exactly. And you have the seed being spread. It's yeah. the good word. And it sprouts up. It takes root yep. and it grows. Yep. And then you have... The shallow, the soil, soil being shallow, and then it withers and dies. And it ra- growing up, but it grows up among thorns, and it's choked out and dies. And their I point, I think was, you're mixing. Oh, see so the parable of the so- okay, the parable of the sower. You got yeah. the, the hard ground, and the seeds, and the, the ravens rock, come, the ones off the road. Thorns, some yeah, grow in good yeah, soil, and they yeah. you know bear fruit a hundredfold, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Their point is that in that scenario, this is the word of God. It's taken root. People's eyes are open. There, it's growing. It grew up. 
Mm-hmm. And then it purposefully died, where like it died when the sh- soil was shallow or when it grew among the thorns. This is an indication that God opened and offered salvation to these people. And then, you know, because they didn't have that strong soil, because they had landed in the, ser- the, the thorns, choked out and died. This is an indication that salvation is not absolute. It has, has to be an ongoing thing because there's circumstances where it would appear that one's eyes are opened and the word is growing and then it stops. So we'd have to conclude, did they slip through Jesus' hand? I mean, did they jump out? So, like, nothing can take you out of my hand unless you want to get out of my hand. Then i got to let you out. I mean, is that the idea? Well, that's kind of like... They are drawing conclusions. No, in other words, fair enough. That's what the the text says. They're the ones drawing conclusions. And I would say their conclusions are erroneous. And their conclusions contradict plain text. No one is... John 10. No one can snatch you out of my hands. So if you're saying they're in God's hands, they're in Jesus' hands... And they don't make it to the finish line. They're, they're, that sounds like what you're saying is they appeared to have their eyes open. They appeared to believe. They appeared to grow. And then they died. Then they were in Jesus' hands and they got out. And Jesus is a liar. And so I would say, where do you draw? The, Jesus' emphasis in the parable is fruit bearing. I would say the person who bears fruit is the believer. You're, if you're important, when you take a parable, it's, it's important to get the main point. We're not actually plants. And if the argument is, once the plant sprouts up, it's alive. Well, technically, the seed's alive, actually. You know what I mean? Right? All seeds are, I mean, seeds that can grow are already alive. They have life in them. Um, so I guess in that sense, you could even argue the, the hard soil is alive. It's got seed on it. Jesus' emphasis is who bears fruit. And that's the emphasis of the parable of the sower. So to conclude... And I, I would say erroneously that because something sprouted it for a while, that must mean there is real spiritual life. Jesus isn't talking about spiritual life. He's talking about the seed being scattered and understanding who bears fruit and who doesn't bear fruit and why. These people don't bear fruit because it gets choked out. These people don't bear fruit because they got no root. These people bear fruit because it's good soil, right? So if they're saying, well, maybe, could it also we conclude that the the, the the, uh, the plant that jumps up quickly is really someone who's saved and alive. You could hold that tenuously and say maybe, and then you get to John 6 where Jesus says, I will, none of them will I lose. I will lose none of them. This is my Father's will that all that come to me get raised. Here you go. Guess not. Well, then as a counterpoint, if yeah. God's will is that all, and I think it talks about in like uh, Timothy, First Timothy, that it is my desire that all come to me, and God is the one who has the ability to extend that. Why is that not the case? If God is saying, that's my great, will is... No, that's a great question. Like, and, no, no. And my conclusion is, either man thwarts God's will, which I think your friends are saying, which who's sovereign then? Whose will is done? God's or man's in that framing? Whose will is sovereign? Man's will thwarts God. It's inescapable. Just make them say that. Man thwarts God. Man's will triumphs over God's will. Man is sovereign. Or... Something else is going on. I mean, no, I'm, I'm just pressing back. That's, I mean, like, no, no, I know you're not saying this. Your friends are. I'm just saying, make them say what they're saying. But, like, the counterpoint to that would be, yeah. if God's will that everyone is saved, then why is that not the case? You could argue, then, that... I haven't granted if, that God's will is that everyone be saved. Your friends have. No, that's in the Bible. I can pull up the text for you. Let's go to Second Timothy. Yeah, let's do it. Sure. Uh, let me see. So, first Timothy, sorry, two four. Uh, first Timothy, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in Second Peter two three nine, 
the Lord, uh, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Which one do you want to deal with? We can do either one. So pick one. Why not First Timothy? First Timothy. Why not? Indeed. Let me get there. First Timothy. Which verse? Two, chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. So my, my question would be, Matthew, simply put, and, and I think this is a fair question. I'm not trying to wrangle on words. The text just says all, and then your ESV Bible say all people or whatever. And the question is, what group is referred to as all? I'm going to argue from the context, it's going to mean something like all sorts of people. And I think in First Timothy 2, that's going to be plain. Um, so First Timothy chapter 2. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, does he mean here every single person? Let's go. For kings and all who are in high positions. They may lead a peaceful and quiet life. I think pretty clearly it's all sorts of people that we're to be praying for. Otherwise, the instruction of singling out kings, may, like if it's all people, no, pray for each person. But he's, he's going to classes, kings and rulers and high positions that may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people. I would say what all people means in verse 4 is what it means in verse 1. And because we're told who to pray for is all types of people, that's what it means here. That, that, that would be, and I think the same thing is going on in Peter. It has to be in Peter. Otherwise, it makes no sense at all either. We can go there in a second. But yeah, I would say, yeah, God desires all sorts of people to be saved. I said this in the pulpit last week. If the plan was to save everybody, the plan failed. Right? Right? I mean, the plan failed if the plan was to save everybody. No? No. I'm okay. Okay. Second Peter. Which passage in Second Peter? Um, let me check one. Three, nine. Second Peter 3.9. I think this one's even clearer. Um, second Peter, oh, I'm in First John, sorry. Give me a second. Second Peter 3.9. Okay. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up. Okay, so I think, I would argue, and I'll explain why, that the you is linking back to, the all is linking back to the you. I, I would translate it something like, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but his patience toward you all, not wishing that any of you should perish. Now here's why I say that. He's explaining why it might appear the Lord has delayed in his coming. Right? Why is he not? Why is he taking his time? He doesn't want any to perish. With each day, do more or less people perish, Matthew? I mean, more people perish. Million, billions of more people have been born because the Lord didn't come back in the first century. Right. So, if the explanation is here's why God seems like he might have delayed, he doesn't want anyone to perish. That that's not working out so well, right? Like that, that doesn't make sense. Now, if, the, if what he's saying is the all is governed by the you, the Lord is not... Let me get back to it. Wait a second. Um, I flipped my page. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but his patience toward you, not wishing that any, any of who, any of what group, any of you should perish. Then what you've got is the, 
Jesus says, I have sheep in other folds, and they, they must hear my, verse and be gathered, my voice and be gathered together also. God has other sheep. He's waiting. That's why he's delaying. Now, that makes some sense to me. But if you want to take the any to mean any person at all, the delay has actually caused far more perishing through the birth of billions and billions of people than not delaying would have. So, so I don't see how the all can mean everyone there because it's the explanation for why there may be an apparent delay. So if I say, hey, is everyone here? There's, context determines who all and everyone reference, right? If I say, hey, is everyone here? We're not asking, is, um, is, is, is President Biden here? We're not asking if people from uh, South Africa are here. We mean of the group we're expecting. So when, when the text says anyone or any should perish, who's it governed to? He's talking to you. So I think it's reasonable enough to say any of you is what the any reference is. But I, I think if you try to plug the other option in, it makes no sense at all. That's a fair point. No, thanks. No, no worries. Now, let me, let me, I want to qualify. Everyone is invited. No one gets turned away. That's equally clear as well. So the invitation is to all. We're com- the Great Commission is, is to preach the gospel to all creation. Paul and Acts. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. So everyone's not even just invited. Everyone's commanded to come. And no one who comes will be turned away. And I want to make that clear when I'm also saying, but, and, and I don't even want to deny that God has a desire for all to be saved, but it's clearly not his top desire. But even the Arminian would say the same thing as well. Only the universalist can say God's ultimate and highest desire is to save all. Because what I would say to the Arminian, the, the person who wants to champion free will, is if God wants all to be saved, why aren't all saved? Well, God doesn't want to force anyone. And he apparently wants that more than to save everyone. In other words, if you press the, the person going to free will, they've got to admit or acknowledge, more than saving everyone, God would rather let vast numbers of people go to hell than to mess with their choice, than to influence them, to, than to in any way coerce. So God, you've got a hierarchy of desires. He wants everyone to be saved, but more than that, he wants everyone to make a free decision. Okay. I can say God wants, God, I mean, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, Zeb, um, we were talking about this last week. Or the prophets, will you not listen? Why will you not come? Why would you perish, O daughter of Zion? And I can, there's, there's a sense of that, but more than that, God wants to glorify himself both through judgment and through salvation. So both the Arminian and the Calvinist, both the, the free will and the, the sovereigntyist, sovereigntist, recognize a hierarchy of desires and both of them acknowledge something is higher than everyone being saved. Because if, if, if God's greatest is, I mean, ask, ask your, your friends on the free will side, could God, if he wanted to, save everyone, even against their will? Could he do that? They'd have to say yes. Why doesn't he do that? Well, there's something he wants more. Cool, we agree. Now the only disagreement is what does he want more? Does that make sense at all? It makes sense. I'm just not quite sure why the distinction matters. Well, because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. The challenge they're raising is God says he wants all people to be saved. And so explain your position in light of that. And I'm saying, fair enough, you explain yours as well. And we're both going to appeal to a hierarchy of desire. We're both going to do that. Only the universalist is going to say, no, no, he accomplishes that goal. 
right? So if, if you're not a universalist, then you've got to recognize there's something God wants more than to save each and every last person. Okay, cool, then, then we have the same type of answer. The only difference between our answers is what it is he wants more. But I, I'm trying to illustrate it's not as though the person arguing for, for sovereignty is in a unique position of having to explain these passages. It's just as much of a challenge for your friends as it is for me. That's, that's what I'm trying to point out. That's why it matters. No, I'm like, I, I get the distinction you're drawing. It's like, but okay. how does that progress further into the argument of like, why this is not the right choice if like we're both basically arguing from the same stance that there is a hierarchy of choices like priorities that um, okay God sorry 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 micro we need the microphone this is this is a good exchange and people are just going to hear me matthew you don't want it to be a one-sided exchange right uh, fair enough okay so what i'm seeing is that we're we're in this ultimately the same position of we're both appealing to a hierarchy of desires yeah. that that god has where he's like one's yeah. this more than the other and if we're both at the same point we're just disagreeing on what those priorities necessarily are it seems then like how does that help further the point that i'm trying to go towards of the bible points out that predestination is a thing yeah well then the question is what's the, right. what does the bible give as the what he wants most and i think the bible gives a pretty clear answer that that's all i'm saying is okay yeah what i'm trying to say is when when the when the uh i, I keep saying arminian but the free when the person advocating free will and denying sovereignty uh, when that person objects, first thing I want to point out is the, the objection, the, the argument they're trying to make to catch me in is equally applicable to them. Both of us have to explain, God has a desire to save, not everyone gets saved. Why is that? And both of us have to say, at the end of the day, there's something God wants more than to save each and every last person. Okay. Jeremy? Now, yes. May, may I suggest yeah. maybe this, this might be a good good topic to take up maybe okay later on a little bit sure. no no sure 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 <laughs> maybe maybe okay. more in private alos randers jumping in <laughs> matthew and i are overtaking this too much fair enough okay fair enough let's let's go any other place anyone wants to go i am if i may yes sir <laughs> would a good summary be that back to this just real quick yeah. would a good summary just be that god's desires and his will are two separate things so he can desire all men to be saved but he does not will all men to be saved no, I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's helpful. I, okay. I think, I think, the Bible clearly speaks, and and Bible theologians, you can call it whatever you want to call it. There are ways God speaks clearly where He speaks about what will in fact happen. I am raising up Assyria. There's no like I'm trying to about it. And there are other times where God expresses things that don't happen, like say the Ten Commandments what God wants people to do and what he calls Israel to do, and they don't do it. And so when you observe that there are times and ways where God speaks about desire that is not always fulfilled, and yet there are other times where equally clearly God's making clear, I am God, I have said, I will accomplish it, I will do it. All prophecy is based upon that aspect, right? The virgin will conceive and bear a son. Then the distinction would be God's will of decree and God's will of desire, that's, I think, a more helpful thing. God can speak of a number of things he wants, and you and I can have a hierarchy of desires. You can have conflicting desires. I want to lose weight. I want to eat ice cream. I want to go on a bike ride. I want to take a nap. All can be true, and only one of those is going to win out. Only one of those is going to be what my will is. And so, biblically speaking, Ephesians 1.11, God is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. So what comes to pass is ultimately what God 
has chosen to do, it's what he ultimately wants to happen, that happens. So we can speak of, I, I would say rather, speaking of God's will, God's desire, and what God decrees, or what God, in the full counsel of his will, determines is best, are, are distinct. I don't know if that helps at all, Caleb, but that's what I'd say. Okay. Ten minutes to go. Anybody? Oh. So... In the book of Matthew 11, verse 28, Give to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It says in Matthew 11, it says when he get rest, that means he is patient. When in Psalms 40, say, wait patiently for the Lord. Yes. Let me, let me take what you just said there and, and emphasize two, two things. Um, we did about six or seven years ago a series on election and predestination, Matthew, which I'm happy to talk more, but I'd start there. And what I think the Bible puts forward is both true, and I want to hit both of these, is man is absolutely responsible and absolutely able to choose whatever it is he wants to do. You can do whatever you want. I mean, you can choose whatever. Your will can settle upon whatever pleases it. You can choose whatever you want to choose. And yet, God's sovereignly ruling over all things. And so, just as in our passage this morning, Jesus says, look, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him, I'll raise him on the last day, is immediately followed by everyone who believes. And so... The, the, what I was trying to say even this morning from the pulpit being don't, don't get hung up on whether I'm out. It's like, Father, call, come, eat, believe, drink, have life. But Jesus does say this such that we give God the credit and the glory for that, um, that we, we praise him even for awakening us from our stupor and our deadness and drawing us. But anyone who wants to can come. The invitation is to all. And I, both of those points need to be made clearly, else I think we end up in, in out of balance and in error. So, okay. Oh, Rowdy, Rowdy Bollinger. Uh, Romans 9, mm-hmm. verse 18. Yep. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does it not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God... Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even as whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles." That's to verse 24. And I would say what Rowdy just read is the biblical answer of what does God want more than to save each and every person? He wants to put his glory fully on display through a variety of vessels with a variety of fates. And and so, yeah, that's, that's where I'd go to for like, okay, what is his ultimate highest value? It would be that. Um, oh, 
You go, Brad. Yeah. Who are you? Oh man. Sure. You know that that's the answer. If you if you uh, are a Calvinist and you prescribe to tulip, you start off with total depravity, and you end with perseverance of the saints. You're totally depraved. You have to be saved. You cannot do it yourself. And if you are saved, you will persevere to the end. Mm. The seed that dies obviously didn't persevere. So it never started. That's what I would glean from that text. Five minutes to go. Any other questions? Oh, Jared has a question. Okay. It's not true. I don't have a question. Oh. Uh, Well, I guess I do. I would like you to highlight... Um, in your message, you had uh, it was like a really good like soundbite. It was like, "We are God, or like God, mm. we are God's uh, gift to Jesus, and yeah. Jesus is also our like or God's gift to us." Yes. So let me back that. Thank you. We're back in my message. Excellent. Okay. Um, go to John six, and last week I mentioned that uh, the Father is giving two things. So in John six. Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Um, Oh, no, sorry, back in 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives, present tense, is giving bread from heaven. So there the Father is giving bread from heaven. And, And who is the bread from heaven the Father is giving? Jesus. Right? So that's one of the givings. Then Jesus says to them, Um... Verse, ooh, um, there's 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So in this passage, the Father is offering to give, and to those who come, Christ has been given to you. And then we find out that the ones who Christ has given to are the ones God has given to Christ, that, that he has given us to him and he has given him to us. I, I think that's pretty beautiful. So, yeah. He is mine and I am his. Or as the Song of Songs say, my beloved is mine, right? Or Paul saying, I take hold of him who took hold of me. Um, they're all beautiful, beautiful pictures. So we are, we are God, the Father's gift to his son, and the son is his gift to us. That's a pretty good place to end this morning on. So we'll let you out a minute early. Thank you. And I can stick around. We can, we can haggle out more, Matthew, if you want, now that we're done. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.